Uh, we're in our third week on a series called Trending Topics. And what we've been doing is we've been looking at, at social, uh, cultural, political issues in, in, in our society and uh, revealing, showing how they're really not political or, or social issues at all. They're, they're gospel issues. And so we've been doing that the last few weeks. We've looked at uh, race in the gospel. Um, last week we looked at sexuality, specifically homosexuality in the gospel. And this week we have another very difficult issue, very difficult topic, um, where we're looking at life and the gospel, specifically the sanctity of life and the gospel. So that's what we're that's what we're doing, uh, looking at this morning. As, as I know, as I as, as I've talked about throughout this series, getting ready for this particular issue that we're going to discover, we're going to we're going to look at. I know this is a tough issue. So here's what I want to do. I want to share with you a story from Luke chapter 7 to kind of set the the stage or or give you a backdrop, give you a a picture of the Jesus that we're worshiping this morning. The the issue or the picture of Jesus kind of as a backdrop uh, of who is involved, who's at work, even in the midst of this issue. Luke chapter 7, you don't have to change to turn there, but I would encourage you to read it this week. It's a crazy, awesome story. Jesus is having a, uh, having a meal with a guy named Simon. He's a Pharisee. And uh, Simon, this Pharisee, he's a moral man, an upright man, moral, um, almost unparalleled in, in that culture in their morality. He invites Jesus to come and have a meal. And Jesus is having a meal with this guy Simon. Probably some other men are in the room having this meal with, with Jesus when suddenly the door swings open. And the Bible says that a lady comes in. The specifically says a lady of the city. Now that doesn't mean a lady that lives in the city. In the Greek you see that it's explicit that this is a, a, a prostitute. This lady swings open the door and makes a beeline to Jesus' feet. And the Bible tells us that she opens an alabaster box, uh, gets out oil, and begins to anoint Jesus' head with oil. The Bible tells us that she also begins to to weep, to cry. She uses those tears, that weeping, those tears from her her eyes to wash Jesus' feet. The Bible tells us that Simon thinks to himself. He doesn't even say anything. He just thinks to himself, if this guy were a prophet, he would know who is at his feet and would not allow it to happen. Jesus answers Simon. I mean, that kind of let that be a lesson, right? He says, hey, Simon, suppose there were two men. One who owed a lender $50, 50 pieces of silver. And suppose there was another, another man who owed the same lender 500 pieces of silver. And that lender said to both of them, to both people, your debt has been forgiven. Who would be more grateful, more thankful? And in a moment of self-righteousness, this guy Simon says, well, I suppose the one who, was, uh, who owed 500 pieces of silver. And Jesus says, you're exactly right. 
And he turns his attention away from Simon back to this lady, this lady of the city, this prostitute. Now, as an aside, you have to understand, nobody, no, no young girl, no, no first grader ever grows up thinking, you know what I want to be when I grow up? I want to be used and abused by men. No girl ever thinks that. It's, it's because of tragedy and, and random uh, events beyond her control that have led to this point. <coughs> And in her shame and her guilt, she begins, continues to wash Jesus' feet with her tears. Now, if you're reading the text, I like to imagine what's going on. I can imagine that Jesus turns his attention to her and all of the guys kind of kind of move to see what's going to happen next. And Jesus looks her straight in the eye and says, Ma'am, your faith has made you well. Your sin has been forgiven. And he sends her away. And in a moment of scandalous grace, in a moment of forgiveness, Jesus makes her well. That's an awesome story. And that's the, worship, the Jesus that we worship. That is the Savior whose grace extends beyond our sin. It's scandalous. And I want to use that picture, that story, that, that event in Jesus' life as a backdrop for what we're going to look at this morning because it's a very difficult subject. Abortion and the sanctity of life. It's a difficult subject. But use that picture, that that reminder of Jesus' scandalous grace that he offers to each and every one of us as a backdrop, as a reminder for the God that we worship this morning as we jump into the scriptures. Now, before you begin to think that I'm going to make this a political issue, um, uh, remember that this is not primarily a political issue. And I'm not going to make it as such. Let me just tell you, both parties, left and right, Republican and Democrat, have let us down on this topic of, of life, when it comes to abortion, the entire political system has let us down. This is not primarily a political issue. It's a gospel issue. Let me, let me prove it to you. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she's an associate justice on the Supreme Court, said during an interview on this topic, the topic of abortion and the sanctity of life in 2009, she was asked about Roe v. Wade, and here was her response. Frankly, I had thought that at the time Roe was decided, there was concern about population growth. And here's the real travesty. And particularly, growth in the populations that we don't want to have many of. Now before you start patting yourself on the back for voting Republican, (coughs) let me read you a quote from President Richard Nixon on this same issue. He said, at the time Roe v. Wade was decided, there are times when abortion is necessary. I know that. For example, when you have a black and a white. Despicable. Absolutely despicable. This is not a gospel issue. 
and it hasn't gone away. I mean, just a few weeks ago, both parties let us down on this issue. Just a few weeks ago, acquiescing their moral responsibility as, as cowards on this issue of life. It's not a political issue. They are never going to save us. And they're never going to offer hope. It's a gospel issue. And it's a, not only that, but it's, it, this is a difficult subject. This is a difficult thing to talk about. Because this morning, I, I, I'm very well aware that I'm walking in a very interesting uh, space. I, it, it's kind of a, I'm, I'm trying to walk a line that, that is very, very difficult when talking about such a, a weighty issue. On the one hand, with all the... the, the the boldness that the Holy Spirit will give me, I have to, to, to declare very clearly that abortion is murder. It is a murder of a human being created in the image of God. It, 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 it's, it's murder unlike this world has really ever known. Let me, let me show you what I mean. At the end of 2015... 57,762,169 legal abortions have been performed in the United States of America since Roe v. Wade decision 43 years ago. To put that into perspective, Stalin was guilty of murdering, murdering 40 million of his own countrymen. Hitler, 30 million. Yet in the United States since Roe v. Wade, we have made those guys look like Aunt Teresa. This is a difficult subject because on one hand, it is murder of a human being that was created in the image of God. And I must declare that boldly. But on the other hand, I am no fool. I am certain that there are people, while I don't know anybody by name, I am certain that there are people in this room this morning who've walked into the doctor's office and had one. And in the same breath that I must declare that it is murder, on the, in, in the same breath I must also declare that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. What that means is where there is sin and it piles up, God's grace piles up even more. Where sin in your life stretches, God's grace stretches even further. And covers it and washes it away. And even murder, even the murder of a human being cannot stretch beyond God's grace. You want me to prove it to you? Let's take a quick travel through the scriptures. Moses, pretty important guy, killed a man with his bare hands. You probably remember the story. He was taken out and he saw a Hebrew, one of his people, being bullied by an Egyptian, being beat by an Egyptian. He goes and takes matters into his own, own hands and kills the Egyptian with his bare hands. Doesn't shoot him from a long ways away, kills them with his bare hands. He realizes the next day that word has gotten out that he is now a murderer. He travels to Midian. He, he escapes the area. He leaves. He goes out into the desert to escape the wrath of Pharaoh. And you know how the story ends. God, God uses him in a powerful, powerful way to lead God's people out of Egypt and to the promised land or right to the edge of the promised land. 
It doesn't stop there. Think about King David. The Bible says that he was a man after God's own heart. The only nickname I got was Smitty. He got man after God's own heart. And you remember his story in his darkest hour. He's hanging out on a rooftop in a place he's not supposed to be. Looks down and sees his friend's wife and says, hey, I want her. Bring her into my palace. They bring her in. He is given multiple chances to stop this sin. He finds out a few days later. He goes through with it. Finds out a few days later that she's pregnant. He concocts a plan, brings her husband off the battlefield, but the plan does not go accordingly. So he sends the the husband, this lady's husband, back onto the battlefield and has him killed. And God calls him a man after God's own heart. It doesn't stop there. Fast forward to the New Testament. Saul of Tarsus. He is breathing threats, taking out men, women, and children. In an effort to stamp out this movement known as the way. And yet Galatians says that it pleased the Father to reveal the Son to, the, to Saul of Tarsus. And you know how the story ends. He becomes one of, it probably outside of Jesus himself, the most influential follower of Christ this world has ever known. Writes most of the New Testament, takes the gospel to the ends of the, of the known earth at the time. You and I know about Jesus, know the gospel. Because of Saul of Tarsus, later called Paul. All three of them guilty of murder, all repentant, and where grace or where their sin abounds, God's grace stretched further. This morning, in the same breath that I must declare that abortion is murder, I also must declare. That where your sin abounds, even the murder of a human being, God's grace stretches further. So if that's you this morning, I want you to hear that loud and clear. God's mercy, His scandalous grace, is available for you this morning. Please don't leave here without it. And the Bible says all you have to do is ask. All you have to do is, is admit that you're a sinner and ask that His grace would, would flow into your heart, into your life, and would remove the sin as far as the east is from the west, the Bible says. And He will do it. All you have to do is ask. Repent and believe. It doesn't matter what your sin is. Where, great, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So with that as a backdrop, that kind of as a Long introduction. I want to jump into the scriptures this morning and just show you how God is at work in the forming of human life. And then we'll be done. So if you have your Bibles, Psalm chapter 139. Psalm 139. In Genesis, I've kind of set the stage. In Genesis, you know that God created. We've talked about this the last three days. I mean, the last three weeks. Um, God created. He created everything, and it was good. And then he cre- and then at the end of that, he creates out or he creates in his own image a man named Adam. Adam, and then out of Adam, he creates Eve and Mago Day in his own image. So therefore, the the Adam and Eve are different from all the rest of creation. And I talked about this just a few weeks ago. 
uh, two weeks ago, to be exact, I talked about our family. How we have me and Mary Jo, Molly, Kate, and Grayson, and then we have uh, Dodger, our dog, smart dog, and then we have the longest living goldfish in the history of the world. <laughs> they are not all equal. All of the people that live under our roof are all the, the, the species that live under our roof are not equal. Why? Because myself, Mary Jo, Grayson, and Molly Kate were created in the image of God. We are we bear the image of our creator, Imago Day. We bear his image. It's a special. We're special creation. It's a special bond that we have with our creator because we bear his very image. But not only that, he is at work, intimately at work in every one of our creation. And we see that in Psalm 139. So let's jump in. Starting in verse 13. Here's what it says. And as we read this, I want you to use your imagination. Not imagining what's not there, but imagining what is there. Use your imagination as we read this. Here it says, it starts verse 13. It says, for you, talking to God, formed my inward parts. I love that. God was at work forming my brain. He, he sees my lungs and he, he breathes air into them. My skeleton, my heart. God is at work forming my inward parts, forming your inward parts. The creator of the world intimately involved in forming your inward parts, according to Psalms. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Notice God is at work knitting us together. Now, I'm no knitter. Maybe I, I wish I was, but... <laughs> I'm no knitter. But here's what I do know. I visit a lady every week. Her name's Mary Haley. She's 94, our oldest member here. She loves to knit. I've seen more you know, things knitted than I would have ever imagined. Here's the only thing that I know about it. She tells me all the time. She has to get a pattern. And she has to get the color yarn that she wants. And then she comes up with a plan to, to knit Whatever it is that she has determined to knit, it does not happen by accident. She doesn't just throw stuff together and then all of a sudden whatever she wants to create happens. She has a plan and then she works that plan out to, to uh, create whatever it is she's creating. That's how you knit. And I can picture the exact same thing going on with the creator of the world, God... Uh, the one who, who breathed and everything that, that is, was, doing the exact same thing. He, he has this plan and he, he gets everything together. And then he begins to knit you and I. Before we ever breathed our first breath, begins to knit us into the human being that we would one day be. God at work, intimately, intimately at work in our personhood. Creating our inward parts and knitting us together. This morning you were no accident. The savior of the world, the creator of the world, knitting you together. The color of your hair, your height, knitting you together in your mother's womb. What a cool picture. He continues. Next verse. I praise you. 
I'm reflecting on, on what you're doing, and the only thing, the only result in what I'm in, in this reflection is that it overflows into praise. I'm thinking about you forming my inward parts. I'm thinking about you knitting me together in just the way that you have designed me to be. And the result of that is it overflows in praise. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Tim Keller put it this way. To fear the Lord biblically means to be in awe and wonder of his greatness and his love. You and I were created fearfully, made fearfully, to be amazed at the one who created us. God is at work, designing us, knitting us, forming us. And when we, when we reflect on that, the only, the natural outflow, the natural result of that is praise. Because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame is not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were, were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when, as yet, there was none of them. I love this picture. So here's what it says. It says that before I was ever born, you were forming me, you were weaving me, you were knitting me together to be the person that I am today. The be, to be the person that you designed me to be. You were at work in my personhood. At the exact same time, the creator God was also building the days that I would invade. So it's this, this kind of track, these parallel tracks. God is knitting us together. He's forming us. He's creating us into the person that he designed us to be. And at the exact same time, he is forming the days that you and I are going to live in. From the day that we're born till the day that we die, God is at work building the days for you and I to invade. He's at work in our life, in, in creating us. He's also at work in building the days that you and I will breathe. You and I will be actively working in. You and I will, 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 will learn to love in. He is at work in building the days. At the same time, he is at work in building us. What a cool picture. God working, building us, knitting us, and building our days, every single one of them. So when I think about Psalm 139, I think about God knitting me, forming my inward parts, and building every single day that I will, that I will invade. Now here's the thing. I'm not really good at anything except for talking. I mean, literally, I have no skill. If, if, if God takes this away, my, my family is going to the poorhouse. I can't do anything else. All I know how to do is talk. And so I can picture God forming me, weaving me, knitting me together in Sadie Smith's womb. I can see God working. All right, we're going to make him short. We're going to take his hairline and we're going to push it way back. But we're going to give him a good set of vocal cords because that's all he knows how to do. So give him a good set of vocal cords. 
Do you know how difficult it is to get through school when all you know how to do is talk? I mean, that's a tough thing to do. But I made my way through school. And now he's using the one thing that I can do. And he's leveraging it for his glory and his renown. And may that always be the case. And may that be the prayer for your skill set as well. Who, whoever your mom was, your birth mom, God was intimately weaving you, knitting you, forming your inward parts, giving you skill sets, giving you talents. And at the exact same time, forming the day so that you would be able to use those talents, leverage those talents for His glory and for His renown. God was at work in your personhood from the very beginning. And just recently, science has finally caught up with what the, the scriptures teach. Let's see if I can find it. Genetically speaking, when the sperm hits the egg, you are a wholly different human being. We know this now. It does not have the same genetic code as mama or daddy. Wholly different person. A new human being from the very beginning with a unique DNA. At eight weeks in the womb, the baby's sucking her thumb. He is recoiling from pain, responding to sound, all while still in the womb. Organs are present, brain is functioning, heart is pumping, liver is making blood cells, kidneys cleaning fluid. Fingerprints have even begun to develop. All by eight weeks, God knitting, forming, working to create an entirely new human being. And yet, in our culture, almost all abortions happen after this time. Over 57 million. So as believers sitting here in Web City, Missouri, what are we supposed to do with this? What are we supposed to do? Whether, whether you have had an abortion, whether you have funded an abortion, whether you have been encouraged an abortion, or whether you have simply been indifferent up to now. What are we supposed to do with all of this information? Well, I think there's a few things that we can do. Number one is this. We can pray. Number one, we can pray. I can find in my notes what I put down. I said, pray for our leaders. Pray that our leaders' hearts would change towards the unborn. Pray that women in the middle of hopelessness and despair who have chosen abortion in their past would find hope, love, and forgiveness that is found only in Christ. By the way, you and I are Christ here on earth for them. If they can't find hope, love, and forgiveness here, they will not find it anywhere. Because only the gospel can offer that under such despairing conditions. So our prayer has to be, number one, 
That God would change the heart of our leaders. Number two, that God would pour out his love and grace through us on women who have had abortions. I heard a, a sermon just last night. I, I love to listen to a sermon on the topic that I preach it completely disconnected. I heard a sermon just last night on, the, on this topic. And here's what the preacher was saying. He was saying, imagine that you're a 20-year-old girl at the nearest university. You have a, a full scholarship where mama and daddy are, are paying for your school. <coughs> you have hopes, dreams about medical school or law school or graduate school. And you find out in the midst of that that you're pregnant. And all of those hopes and dreams began to crash. Imagine the hopelessness. Imagine the despair at that moment. It is not enough for us. It is not enough for us just to sit idly by and hope that they find help. We have to engage. We'll talk about that in here in just a second. We have to engage. Meeting those ladies right where they are. Offering hope, offering love, offering forgiveness. And it begins with praying. So number one, pray for our leaders. Pray for women who have had abortions, that they would find uh, peace, love in the gospel. And in people who claim Jesus' name in the church. Number three, that we can pray for women who are facing that predicament now and that they would understand that there are other options besides abortion. That's another thing that we can pray for. Women who, who are currently in that condition, that they would come across people who love Jesus and would offer hope, offer solutions that include things other than aborting their child. That's something else that we can pray for. So number one, we can pray. Pray in multiple ways. Number two, we can participate. Participate. Here's what I wrote down. You can write your representative. Write clearly, respectfully, lay out why abortion, why abortion in this country should stop and hold them to account. While this is not a political issue, I believe that we should follow Paul's example of leveraging our citizenship in this country for the sake of righteousness. You cannot legislate morality. You're not going to change anybody's heart. But it is our right as citizens to be heard on this issue. You can write your representatives and hold them to account. Write clearly, write respectfully, probably more respectfully than I suggested at the beginning of my sermon. Number two, you can work or volunteer in ministries that serve poor and needy women. Several great organizations in our area who help women, foster kids, pregnancy aid, and adoption. Get involved in those organizations. If you've been around here any time at all in the last few months, we have leveraged all of our resources above and beyond what it takes to do ministry here for this sake. And we will continue to give opportunities to help pregnancy aid, adoption, foster care. Many awesome organizations, Life Choices, um, Fostering Hope, Missouri Baptist Children's Home, several people that work there. Leverage your volunteer hours. Leverage your resources for the sake of those issues. And lastly, I want to close with this. If you're here this morning 
you've had an abortion, you've helped fund an abortion, you've encouraged an abortion, or you've simply been indifferent. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Run to it and receive it. We're here to help you with that. If you need help, you need resources, you need to be pointed in the right direction, you need to know what it means to receive that grace. It would be our greatest privilege to to share with you or to help get you resources in your your, uh, journey to forgiveness, in your journey to wholeness, in your journey to restoration. We want to be a part of that. Here's what I'd ask you to do. You can do one of two things. You can find myself, Phil Jordan, or you can stop by the Connection Center. You don't have to give any details. Just say, hey, I need to talk to a pastor, and one of us will call you this week, and we will help you find the people that will help uh, in your restoration, in your, in your journey to wholeness. But it's only found in the gospel. It's only found in Christ. Our elders here are awesome. They have paid, they have paid for people. They actually are paying for people today on their road to wholeness. If it takes counseling, if it takes uh, 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 medical care, whatever the case may be, our elders are beyond generous to help you in your journey. And they will do that. I can assure you. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Let's pray. Father, so much to share this morning, so much to talk about. Lord, I just pray that if nothing else, we would know that where sin abounds, that your grace covers it and stretches even further. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, or this week when I was studying, normally my my notes are six pages. When I got to Thursday afternoon, that's when I kind of try to finish up the end of my sermon. I, I, I was looking at my sermon. It was 18 pages long. I mean, we would have been here for three hours. And so I had to come back. If it seems disjointed, I'm sorry. This is an issue that is far more serious and covers so much more ground than can ever be covered in 30 minutes. And maybe we should do a series on it sometime. But this morning, I don't want you to walk out. Wondering where we stand on this issue. Wondering where I stand on this issue. It's a sin, but that's why Jesus came. That's the only reason he showed up here. To offer forgiveness in that sin. To walk out of here just like the lady of the city. With her head held high. And with scandalous grace being offered from our Savior. I love you.